interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt Kelly and I take a deep dive into a recent speech by SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw, in which she upended the SEC philosophy on enforcement of financial penalties. Commissioner Crenshaw proposes that financial penalties be based upon the egregiousness of the conduct and not taking into account whether new shareholders should have to pay for the illegal actions of prior shareholders, prior officers and directors, and boards. It's a fascinating speech that could potentially change not only the philosophy of SEC enforcement, but also compliance programs, self-disclosure, and a wide variety of other issues that could go into enforcement. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Today, we're going to take up a, I have to say, fascinating speech by Carolyn Crenshaw, Commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which Matt actually was cited in, at least in the written text. But although that in and of itself is very interesting and indeed cool, it's not as cool as uh, or interesting as what uh, Commissioner Crenshaw said. So, Matt, first of all, welcome. And uh, what drew you to her remarks? Uh, well, thank you, Tom. So in full disclosure, it, as cool as it was to be cited in footnote number two of Miss Crenshaw's speech, that was not actually what drew me to it. Uh, somebody had called out to me that I was mentioned in it. And then as I read the speech, I just it hit me that this was a significant policy statement from Commissioner Crenshaw. Uh, she's a Democratic appointee who has been on the commission only since last August. Uh, but she really took a wrecking ball to several long-held assumptions about how the SEC should impose penalties in civil enforcement actions. And she talked extensively about how penalties should be used when settling cases of corporate misconduct. Uh, For the record, she was speaking at the Council of Institutional Investors. They were having their spring meeting last week, and Commissioner Crenshaw's remarks were made to them. But uh, there are a whole lot of longstanding assumptions about how policy, uh, penalties should work that she basically just cast aside to sketch out a much more aggressive use of penalties. And uh, that is really something that is worth the attention from compliance officers and uh, corporate defense lawyers. So, Matt, could we start back in 2006 when the uh, most current SEC enforcement uh, philosophy was put into place and talk about what that philosophy included and then move to some of the uh, least considered changes. So this policy that uh, when we talk about longstanding policy, that's when it was stood up. Uh, On the very first working day of 2006, January 4, uh, the SEC adopted on a 5-0 vote, which back then you sometimes saw some unanimous policy decisions from the SEC. You never see them these days, but I can remember those days. Uh, they adopted this enforcement penalty that said, among other things, 
penalties should not impose uh, an undue burden or unduly burden shareholders of the company at the time of resolution uh, for two principal reasons. Uh, First, the shareholders at the time of the resolution might not have benefited from the misconduct that was being settled, because that probably would have happened several years earlier, and there were different shareholders at the time. Uh, So why would you punish shareholders who were not involved in or responsible for or benefited from that misconduct? And second, those shareholders, ultimately, when there's a penalty, it's their money that is being paid to the SEC. So that's so many millions more money in corporate assets that is not going to further their interests. And they had nothing to do with the misconduct. So why are we harming these shareholders? That has always been the logic that has led to uh, probably more use of disgorgement of ill-gotten gains as opposed to penalties, but just a, especially during Republican administrations, um, a much more subdued use of the penalty power anyways. Um, now, the way that has also extended, I think, somewhat to the Justice Department, but really here, Commissioner Crenshaw was talking specifically about how the SEC and its civil enforcement, how they're using penalties. And she basically said, even if all of that thought about the shareholders is true, and she went on to challenge whether that those assumptions are true, but she said, even if all of this is, is true, you know, basically, who cares What does that have to do with the job of corporate penalties, which is to punish wrongdoing by a company? And that was really something. Um, In fact, Tom, I'd like to just take a moment to read off what I thought was the killer quote from Commissioner Crenshaw's speech, where she said, "Uh, it's clear to me that the commission has historically placed too much emphasis on factors beyond the actual misconduct when imposing corporate penalties including whether the corporation's shareholders benefited from the misconduct or whether they will be harmed by the assessment of the penalty. This is myopic approach, and this myopic approach is flawed, and the reason why we need to make the change. Like That is a punch right between the eyes in shareholder speech or in SEC speech language. Like That is just a very bold, flat-out statement saying, I am challenging all of the assumptions that we have been using to have our current policy out the window, taking a very different approach. And it was um, it was an arresting thing to read. Matt, uh, there were also uh, some additional comments that I think would warm the heart of every compliance practitioner of uh, areas or at least actions a company could take to uh, perhaps reduce an overall penalty. And one of which was having an effective compliance program, although they didn't use the phrase effective compliance program, in 2016, self-disclosure, and then uh, remediation as well. And those were concepts that are generally attributed to the Department of Justice uh, starting around perhaps 08 or so and bringing forward. But here we see them in a in an earlier document that uh, are other mechanisms by which companies uh, can get credit. What did you think about those comments as well? Well, it was interesting. I'll have to admit that uh, the 2006 policy, which you could say was sort of a ancestor of the corporate enforcement policies we see today. It did articulate those things, but uh, Commissioner Crenshaw did go to lengths to say that just because you agree to cooperate in an SEC investigation, that does not mean you get no penalties. Uh, To get no penalties, you really have to voluntarily come to the SEC to say, we found this problem, we are confessing it now, 
Uh, we are going to go to great lengths to get to the root of this, and then we are going to cooperate with the SEC. Now, that's all basically the corporate enforcement policy that the Justice Department sort of formalized in 2017 or 2018. But um, you know, she did say that doing the bare minimum to cooperate with an SEC probe does not ipso facto mean no penalties. It means you're doing the bare minimum. If you want no penalties, you have to do a lot more, which gets to the heart of what a compliance program really is, which is a company has to care about doing the right thing, no matter what the consequences are. And that would include, I would argue, uh, confessing to the misconduct, bringing it to the attention of regulators, uh, fully getting to the bottom of how this happened and trying to remediate any of these weaknesses, regardless of whatever else might happen because of the regulatory enforcement that may or may not follow. Um, so all of that should be music to the ears of a compliance officer. Matt, in addition to, uh, so hopefully I got that right, a, a punch between the eyes, as you called it, I was interested in the timing of this statement uh, because it, uh, when the speech was made, Gary Gensler had not been confirmed as no. the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I, uh, if you're going to have a policy announcement, I guess I would have expected the chairman to be in place. Any real thoughts on the timing issue? I do have some thoughts about that because it is interesting that as of today, Monday, Gary Gensler has not yet been confirmed. He did get reported out of the Senate Banking Committee on a somewhat bipartisan vote. Uh, two Republicans voted in favor of him. Uh, so now it goes to the full Senate. I suspect he is going to get confirmed. I suspect it's going to be with some Republican support. Um, but that gets to, so why would a Democratic commissioner who is not even the acting chair that's Alison Heron Lee, who is going to, to she's making news in her own right. Uh, but why would Commissioner Crenshaw do this? And I suppose we could speculate, and we're only speculating, that Commissioner Crenshaw is acting as something of a stalking horse to stake out a really aggressive posture on CC enforcement. And then, uh, I, you know, it, obviously, the Republicans on the commission will not agree with that because it was not what they were doing when they were in charge. Uh, but if you have these two extremes, then in comes Chairman Gensler, who gets to be the um, the middle. And when you're, you basically, he wants to play both sides against the middle, which is exactly what the chairman would like to do, because the chairman is the person in the middle. Uh, he or she gets to be the tiebreaker. And, uh, you know, Crenshaw can really wage these intellectual fights. Um, I saw similar sorts of things happening during the Trump administration, where at various times, uh, former Republican Commissioner Michael Piwawar and still current Commissioner Hester Peirce, uh, both Republicans, both very conservative, have from time to time staked out some really conservative positions on SEC policy. And that let then Chairman Jay Clayton kind of play king broker or kingmaker in the middle and I think Gary Gensler would like to do something similar. Uh, when you're an SEC chairman, you want to sit in the middle and be the tiebreaker because that gives you the power. And maybe Crenshaw is kind of doing him a favor in a roundabout way. Have we had a response from the two Republican commissioners on this issue that you've been aware of? And that is an excellent question because I kind of would be surprised if we don't hear that something like that. Um, just last week, for example, 
uh, Acting Commissioner Lee, she has been staking out some bold statements on climate change disclosures. And Republican commissioners did put out sort of a, a counterstatement on climate change disclosures, uh, kind of acting against or pushing back Chairman Lee's statements there. We haven't seen something like that yet with um, Commissioner Crenshaw's statements on penalties. But Tom, I would like to call out one other thing that I think is interesting and related here is that last week we also saw the acting head of the Corporation Finance Division, John Coates, he gave a separate speech where he was talking about ESG disclosures and possibly enhanced requirements or requirements for enhanced ESG disclosures and how would that actually work. And his speech basically started from the assumption that of course ESG disclosures are something investors want to know about. And that is a direct challenge to what the GOP position is on a lot of climate change and social justice and governance disclosure issues, uh, where the Republican position has always been, these are not necessarily things that the investor has to know about. If these positions are not financially significant, they can't be material, so you can't require them to be disclosed. That's always been the Republican position. It's the Republican position when the ranking Republican on the Senate Banking Committee kind of sort of tangled with Gary Gensler over ESG just the other week. And here comes John Coates, the acting head of corporation finance, saying just the opposite. Well, of course, you can have things that are not financially significant still be material. So, of course, we should think about how to make them disclosed. So here we have the acting Democratic commissioner uh, basically both totally categorically rejecting Republican views on how we should be having SEC policy decided. Uh, that strikes me as different. I have always seen for the years or so that these positions, you know, the Democrats might kind of sort of tangle with them. Let's try and negotiate our way around it. You might be right here, but maybe not over there. This is Coates and Crenshaw basically both saying, nope, you're wrong. I mean, of course, it our way is absolutely has to be the right way, right? Let's figure out what this means. Um, and I wonder if this presages a more aggressive stance on SEC policies generally, that they are just going to categorically dismiss long-held Republican positions. Like, no, that's not the foundation of securities rules in this country. Uh, we're going to work from a very different set of assumptions, which will take corporate disclosure and corporate compliance to very different places if that holds, if that holds true and continues. You made an interesting link between uh, the profit disgorgement decisions by the United States Supreme Court yep. and this. Um, I wasn't sure I saw that link, but I wanted if you could walk us through that and see how you think this perhaps could have been a response to that decision as well. Well, it, I wonder if it could have been because, um, you know, we had seen in, I think it was 2019 or 2020, uh, where people were challenging the SEC's disgorgement power in federal court. And the Supreme, this went right up to the Supreme Court where a plaintiff was saying, actually, the, the SEC doesn't have any disgorgement power in federal court cases. Uh, and the Supreme Court ruled that, well, yeah, you do, but you kind of have to make a good effort to get the disgorged profits back to the investors. And um, I am wondering if this approach on penalties just sets all of that aside, because there isn't really much question that the SEC does have 
very broad civil penalty power. Now it has it under a statute of limitations, and I get that. But um, you know, to a certain extent, extent, if you're quibbling over disgorgement powers and you know, how would you figure this all out, the SEC could just say, "Who cares? Here's a penalty for the same amount." And well, yeah, I mean that's it. You know, they they get to do that. So, Tom, I don't know if you have a more refined legal analysis of that, but I was very curious to see how would this affect disgorgement and other issues? Uh, Frankly, I hadn't thought of that until I read your piece, and it seemed to make sense in terms of what the SEC can bring to bear penalty-wise if they want to either bring those penalties uh, through some of these mechanisms that Crenshaw's talked about, or they just want to threaten it and uh, get a company to agree to – some sort of uh, profit disgorgement based on those uh, negotiations. Well, I, I should also say as much as we all might be analyzing disgorgement or penalties in the SEC uh, realm, I think for a lot of companies, if you're at that point, you probably have the Justice Department on your back too, and they have much heavier criminal enforcement powers. And like at the, for, I think we sometimes get lost in the details here that for most companies, that will be the least of your problem. You probably will have a Justice Department people hovering around as well, and they'll be wielding much bigger clubs anyways. So keep your eye on the ball. Um, Tom, there were two other points that Crenshaw raised that I wanted to bring in that I thought was interesting. She did say, well, what should penalties be based on? Uh, Number one, they should be based on the egregiousness of the offense. And the more outrageous the misconduct, the bigger the penalty, period. Uh, And also, it should be tied to the nature of the offense. That is, the larger the penalty should be if the SEC has a more, the more difficult the misconduct had been for the SEC to detect, the larger the penalty should be. That was her other point. Um, So again, a lot of just like really bold assumptions and challenges to existing SEC penalty policy that uh, that's going on here. And I I don't know where it's going to end. Uh, Clearly, the future Chairman Gensler will have much more authority about this, but Crenshaw's given him a lot of turf to play with if he wants to. Well, that one thing uh, that uh, I sort of garnered in reading your post and then actually going back and reading the 206 original SEC memo that you linked to in your post was that uh, in addition to some of the basic concepts that were brought forward in the Department of Justice's corporate enforcement policy, I've often wondered why the SEC has not kind of updated its enforcement policy with something similar. And could this, at least it made me wonder, could this be the start of some sort of SEC statement about these are the factors we're going to take into account? And it may not be as with the definitive credit of the corporate enforcement policy, but sort of bring that all that forward um, into the 2020s. You know, that's a good question. It could be. Um, I think that would be necessary. I mean, 15 years is perfectly reasonable time to reassess your enforcement policy. Um, It is perhaps the case that uh, under Jay Clayton and the Trump administration, let's not forget that there were a lot of systemic problems that Clayton had to deal with at the SEC, including a cybersecurity breach and um, misconduct within the public company accounting oversight board that he had to take care of. And it's very possible that Clayton just couldn't get to that. Um, it's also very possible that a new enforcement policy might have been something he wasn't necessarily equipped to write. Uh, Jay Clayton had never been in government before. Gary Gensler has run the Commodities Futures Trading Commission for the Obama administration. Gensler is 
much more attuned to what a regulatory agency should do. He's run one. Um, I think that he does have much more sophisticated views about securities policy generally. I'm not saying Jay Clayton didn't. I'm just saying that you know Gary Gensler has already run a, a miniature version of the SEC when he was head of the CFTC. If he wanted to turn around a new enforcement policy, Gensler would know how to do it, and he'd know how to do it quickly. Um, now, that said, I'm impressed to see how anybody these days could get five SEC commissioners to agree on anything. Um, I wish Chairman Gensler good luck when he finally does take the job to see if he could get a 5-0 and o statement on a new enforcement policy. Um, crazier things have happened. But even if that doesn't happen, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a new enforcement posture coming, especially once we get some of the staff people in, including a permanent new head of the enforcement division, which we do not have right now. I guess my final sort of uh, thought, Matt, was this seemed to be very under the radar. And although you and I picked up on it pretty quickly and you wrote about it or blogged about it almost immediately, uh, I didn't think I saw anything in the greater business press about this. And uh, for such a punch in the face, it did seem uh, to warrant some greater press coverage. Well, Tom, sometimes you and I are just the most outstanding bright minds in the compliance and business press. What can I say? On that note, I think we have to end this podcast. All right, Tom, take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you will join Matt and I each Monday at 3 p.m. Central, where we live stream Compliance Into the Weeds. And you can pitch questions to us and be part of the engagement and commentary. If you have any questions for Matt, you can reach him at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. If you have questions for me, you can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you will uh, join us again for an audio podcast or the live stream once again 3 p.m. Central Time each Monday. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.